you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the eighteenth year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I have said, my name shall be there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Well, let me welcome you again to church this morning. Uh, Very warm welcome if you are gathered with us here in the room uh, at Palace Barracks Cinemas. So glad that you are here. Uh, And likewise, uh, welcome to those who are streaming online as well. Uh, We're glad that you can follow along as well. Hey, if, um, if this is your first time here, particular welcome. Uh, my name is Dave, uh, married to Rowena, father to Sam, Tom and Beth, and it is my honour to serve as the lead pastor of this church. And my hope and prayer for each of us today, whether we're brand new to the things of Jesus, uh, whether we've been around Jesus for our whole life, is that each and every single one of us uh, would get to know Jesus better as a result of gathering together today. Hey, just a couple of things very briefly before we dig into God's Word. Uh, The first is, as you would all be aware, um, uh, tomorrow there's a bunch of rules that are changing uh, in Queensland with borders opening up and uh, different things in place and uh, increased restrictions uh, for unvaccinated and so on. Uh, We've been praying about this for a couple of months and uh, again, just to echo what I said last week, I'm thankful for the ongoing prayers and the real tangible expressions of unity 
in this family of believers, uh, even in the midst of discomfort uh, and even disagreement. Uh, there's a unity and a love uh, that this church is showing for one another, and we want to continue like that, and we want to continue to pray. Um, as many of you would know, uh, places of worship in Queensland don't have the same uh, restrictions that pretty much every other organisation and other business has, and so are, are able to operate without COVID passports being required. However, we're a church that meets in a cinema, and like every other business uh, in this city and state, uh, passports are required. Um, I shared last week uh, one of our hopes, and we've been uh, working towards this, is we're hoping, we still don't have a final confirmation, but we're hoping that our 8.30 service next week uh, could be one without passports. Um, we've had discussions with, uh, with government, uh, with healthcare workers, uh, and also with our venue. Um, that decision's kind of out of ha our hands, uh, and so can you keep praying? Uh, we're hoping to be able to welcome people throughout the next couple of months, or however long this season is, at the 8.30 service, regardless of vaccine status. Uh, but good news, as Zach has already shared, we have our night service moving to the city, uh, which I'm really excited about. We're thankful for uh, the church in Wilston uh, and being able to host it there for the last couple of months. But we're now in a space that's twice as big, right in the city, literally a couple of hundred metres across over the train tracks. Uh, we're thankful for the Adventists for... Uh, partnering with us in this way. And so I'm really excited that that service will be a space where we can welcome people because it is a place of worship. Uh, and so uh, again, if you're unable to, this is the 10.30, we will not be able to, you will not be able to come here next week uh, if you uh, are not vaccinated. We'll see how we go for the 8.30, but we're 100% confident that all people can come to that 5.30. Uh, we're also looking at different ways of having a meal together after the service uh, throughout summer as well. But can you keep praying? Um, let's um, keep staying together. Let's keep trusting Jesus. Uh, let's keep giving ourselves um, to Jesus and trusting His rule and reign uh, in this moment. But hey, next week is our final service of the year. It's our Christmas service, uh, and it's going to be fantastic, and it's going to be big, it's going to be loud, uh, shortest sermon of the month, um, definitely, and um, want to urge you to invite people along. I think it's the easiest invite of the year. Um, people are festive-ish, and uh, this is a, a low-hanging fruit moment, and so if there's people in your life who have had some type of interaction with Jesus and the church in the past, invite them back. Uh, but hey, go out on a limb with your neighbour, with your colleague, with your friend, um, with your family member, whoever it is, um, and why, don't, why not invite them along and, uh, and see what happens. Um, next week, promises to be a fantastic Sunday, and we'll be back on January 9th for our first service of the year. I'm going to, um, before we read God's Word and consider it together, uh, I'm going to pray a traditional Advent prayer prayed by many uh, on this third Sunday in the Advent season uh, across the globe uh, for the last 500 years. Why don't we um, pray together? O Lord Jesus Christ, you sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation. Grant that the ministers and stewards of your mysteries may likewise make ready your way by turning the hearts of the disobedient toward the wisdom of the just, that at your second coming to judge the world, we may be found a people acceptable in your sight. For with the Father and the Holy Spirit, you live and reign, one God, now and forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, last week, a Brisbane woman, uh, Karen Crone, told ABC Radio Brisbane Drive host, Steve Austin, about something she found on a recent walk. 
She was casually strolling the northern Brisbane streets of Red Hill, not too far from here, when she spotted a half-buried glove that had surfaced with the wet weather. It turned out to be a wallet that she says was stolen from her home 20 years earlier. Isn't that remarkable? She said this, she said, I went walking and stopped for some reason. I looked to my left and there on the ground was what appeared to be a black glove. I pulled it out and kept walking up the hill and I thought, I'll open it to see if I can find a card to return it. I've opened it and the first thing I've seen is my name. Sure enough, it was my wallet. Now, she said that while the cash was well and truly gone, her old cards, including her driver's license, remained. Isn't that a remarkable era when you're allowed to smile for your driver's license? I think we protest the government about that one. But have you ever found something after it was lost for a long time? Show of hands. Have you ever found something after it was lost for a long time? A whole bunch of hands went up and a whole bunch of hands didn't go up and they're like, I wish I could put my hand up now. It's a good feeling, isn't it? In our passage today, Something that was lost for a long time is found. And this something is of much greater significance than a wallet. It is the book of the law, God's Word. And it has been missing from the reign of various kings in Judah's history. And so to bring you up to speed, uh, if this is your first week here, this is the final week in a series. The series is called The Coming King. And we've been looking at the life and the times of some kings in Judah and Israel from the book of 1 and 2 Kings. Now, we kicked off the series um, kind of in view of the promises that God had made to David, incredible promises that someone from his family would be on the throne forever, that someone from his family would build a house from God. We, we kind of see some wonderful partial fulfillments of those promises in Solomon. There's some high moments in the reign of King David's son, Solomon, and yet, because of his folly in the end and his worship of the gods of the nations, the kingdom is divided. There is a civil war. We have the northern kingdom, the ten tribes called Israel. Then we have the southern kingdom, the two tribes are called Judah. Now, for the last few weeks, we focused in particular on the northern kingdom, Israel, and what really, even, even though there were some high points, we had a succession of bad kings who ultimately led the people astray. Uh, by the time we get to two kings where we've had read today, chapter 22 and chapter 23, uh, the northern kingdom has now been taken over by the Assyrians. Effectively, the northern kingdom of Israel ceases to exist from this point on. What about the southern kingdom? What about Judah? Well, they don't fare much better. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 21, we read about King Manasseh. King Manasseh, uh, one of the kings of Judah, and he, by all accounts, is considered to be the worst. He, like many of his forebears, is guilty of rampant idolatry and of the slaughter of innocent blood. The Lord says that because of Manasseh's wickedness, that the southern kingdom of Judah will also be taken over and go off into captivity by the Babylonians. However, there are a number of kings in Judah that do serve the Lord 
faithfully. Kind of by the end of 1 and 2 Kings, it's not great news for either the north or the south, but it's a bit better news for the south. And so today we meet probably the finest king in the history of Judah and the finest king really in the Old Testament. And it's actually, surprise, surprise, Manasseh's grandson. The worst king, his grandson is the best king. His name is Josiah, considered to be the best king. Everyone's measured against King David and Josiah is considered to be the best. Pick it up with me in 2 Kings chapter 22. Now, if you've got a Bible, keep it out, keep it open, we'll be flicking around a little bit. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to gift you with one. And so please go and see our team out at the info desk. Uh, We'd love to put a Bible in your hands and encourage you likewise to read it. But 2 Kings chapter 22 verse 1 says this, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jediah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. Now, this is a very young king and those of us with eight-year-olds in our homes can imagine how wild this concept is of having one so young taking the throne and doing a responsible job of it. And yet, look at the assessment of this 31-year reign. Verse 2, it says, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. That's a positive commendation. We read one at the end of his life, at the end of chapter 23 as well. Question, what was the key to Josiah's success as the king of Judah? Answer, his relationship to God's Word. Josiah's relationship to God's Word was the key to his success as the king of Judah. Today, I want you to notice uh, the way that Josiah's relationship to God's Word impacted his whole life, his head, his heart and his hands. Number one, his head. In his head, he hears God's Word. Number one, head, hearing God's Word. In just the eighth year of Josiah's reign, as a 16-year-old, he knew as a result of his Uh, ancestors, that the nation was in a mess and that there was work that needed to be done. And so, while his team are repairing the temple, have a look at what they discover. Chapter 22, verse 8. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Jump down to verse 10. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. They found this book, the book of the law. Shaphan has a read. Now the king has a lesson. And this is a big deal. 
You know, the, the disobedience of Amon, Josiah's dad, and Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, makes even more sense when we find out that they've been failing to hear from God, failing to listen to the book of the law. You know, some of us have messy rooms and can understand how easy it is for a library book to go missing and have to pay the fine because you can't find the book and then months later you find the book after you've paid the fine. But this is a mess for Amon and Manasseh. They don't care about the book of the law. And so as Josiah hears the book of the law, he can understand all the more the ways in which his ancestors have fallen short of God. You see, now that the book of the law has been found, now that Josiah has a relationship with the book of the law, in his head, he's heard it. He's heard God's word. It will, as we'll see, make an impact in Josiah's life and it will make an impact in the nation. Now, before we read of that impact, it's important to know that Josiah has heard God speak. And that's good news for Josiah, because Josiah doesn't need to guess what God wants. It is a remarkable truth that God speaks. And there's kind of two broad ways in which we see in Scripture uh, the way that God speaks. There's general revelation and special revelation. God's general revelation, God's general way of speaking is through that which has been made. The creation points to the handiwork of a creator. The heavens declare the glory of God. As we see the creation, we are to see that there is a God who made it all. God speaks in a general way through the things that have been made. But even better news is that God speaks in a special way to His people through His Word. The Old Testament is full of the ways in which God speaks in many and various ways to the prophets and the people of God. What a privilege for Israel, what a privilege for Judah to have the thoughts of God passed on to them through God's special revealed Word. God has made Himself known by speaking to His people. Isn't that remarkable? And as we move into the New Testament, we know that God continues to speak. And like Josiah hears God's Word, we must hear God's Word too. Now, why does it matter that we hear God's Word too? Well, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In it, we have Paul's letter, his second letter to his apprentice, Timothy. And this little section we're going to read is all about the prominent relationship that Timothy has had with the Word of God, that Timothy has had with the Scriptures. Pick it up with me, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, Paul says this to Timothy, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He's known the truths of God's Word from childhood. And in God's Word, wisdom is revealed. And in particular, did you notice there in verse 15, 
wisdom from God about how to receive salvation. We get made wise for salvation. That is, in the Bible, we learn that we need to be saved. Something has gone wrong. We're out of step with our Creator. And that Jesus is the Saviour. And you're made wise for salvation, how? Through faith in Christ Jesus, through trusting in Christ Jesus, through depending upon Him. You see, the Scriptures point us to salvation in Jesus. And continues, verse 16, it says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. The Old Testament, the New Testament is God's breath to us. God's revelation of Himself, God's letter to us. We keep coming to this book because God rules us and He reigns and He reveals Himself to us through it. God speaks and so we listen. And verse 16 continues and we just see how useful this Word that comes from God is. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible has everything that we need. Now, the Bible doesn't answer all our questions but it does answer all the ones we need to know. You know, in the Christian life, there's a bunch of competing voices, competing authorities that are vying for our attention. Uh, For in particular, Scripture, experience, tradition and reason. Four authorities, four voices that are vying for our attention. Scripture, Well, in in the Scriptures, God speaks to us. This is an authority, this is a voice vying for your attention. Then there's experience, that is, we learn from the things that we feel and the experiences and the circumstances of our lives. Then there's tradition, Uh, we learn from those who've come before us. We always learn from history. We're supposed to learn from history. We're supposed to learn from the traditions that are passed down for us. And then fourth voice, the fourth authority is reason. What is reason? That is the human wisdom and understanding that God gives us to be able to think and process and determine logic. Now, Scripture, experience, tradition, and reason are all valid authorities that are given as a gift by God. However, a massive however, the ultimate authority of authorities must be Scripture. God's rule and God's revelation of Himself through His Word. Experience, tradition, And reason must always be weighed underneath the authority of God as He's revealed Himself in His Word. You know, the dangers of elevating 
my own personal experience over Scripture, well, my feelings can be deceptive. And the reality is we won't all in the Christian life have the same experiences, nor ought we expect the same experiences. You know, sometimes when we elevate experience over God's Word, we might run from God when we begin to suffer. And yet, if we were actually spending time in God's Word, we'd see that suffering is normal in Scripture. And it's not an absence of God's love and rule in your life, simply because of the suffering that you personally experience. I know of people in our church that have been very hurt in previous church experiences when they've been encouraged to have experience as the ultimate authority and end up in places without the same type of Scripture and Gospel confidence that we ought to have as those who believe this Word. There's also dangers of elevating traditions over Scripture. Now, what are some of those dangers? Well, others can get it wrong. People are fallible, but the Word of God is infallible. But people are fallible. And it's very easy from one generation to the next, if we don't keep going back to check it against Scripture, you can quickly forget the foundation of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. And you can kind of see this as you take a step back and look at big movements uh, throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, of, of times where traditions have actually undermined what God has clearly revealed in Scripture. And yet, it's not just centuries-old traditions passed down in different organizations or church denominations, but even for us, we're a five-year-old church, we're kind of a toddler, Uh, we're about to go to school next year, is kind of the age of our church, and yet, even in a young church like ours, it's easy to fall into the trap of traditions. Wait, hang on, that's not how we do it. Wait, hang on, no, that's, that's, that, 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 the way we normally do it is this. And, and we kind of end up very early on, even in a, a young church's life, we can get locked into traditions in a way where uh, we are undermining the authority of God's Word. And then finally, the dangers of elevating reason over Scripture. I think reason is perhaps the most dangerous of those three competing authorities and voices vying for our attention. What are the dangers of elevating reason over Scripture? Well, it's very easy when you elevate human wisdom and human understanding and logic and reasoning, we start editing out bits of the Bible that don't fit with the culture. Well, hang on, I couldn't believe a a God who says that about sexual ethics, says that about how to live in the world. And and yet, we're, we're letting the culture actually determine our beliefs and our values rather than Scripture determine our beliefs and our values. You know, more than that, and this even invades into different church movements at different times, when you elevate reason over Scripture, you can downplay the miracles of Jesus. Oh, well, people can't walk on water, that's just not possible. And so, when the Bible says Jesus walked on water, He was probably on a sandbar, and it was just kind of the appearance of walking on water, and the disciples knew that, but the way they told the story is, you know, like, this is is a moment just to know that God's with us in the tough times. He he obviously didn't walk on water, and you can end up denying all sorts of miracles and editing out all sorts of parts of Scripture, and 
in the end, you can end up denying that which is central to Christian faith and belief. You can deny the physical resurrection of Jesus. I don't know if you've heard this, but there are church leaders in our country who say this about the resurrection of Jesus. They say, well, the resurrection of Jesus is not physical because people don't physically rise from the dead. What's happening at that point? Human reason, human logic is trumping Scripture. But Scripture's testimony is Jesus was physically raised from the dead. You can't just say, oh, it's just merely a spiritual resurrection. Oh, he obviously didn't rise from the dead physically, but he rose in the hearts and the minds of his disciples. And he can rise in your heart and your mind, and you can live on with the the spirit of the resurrected Jesus in your life too. The Apostle Paul calls that out as absolute rubbish. 1 Corinthians 15, he goes to great lengths to say that if the resurrection physically didn't happen, Christians, you're stupid, because your hope is a resurrection hope. Your belief is that you will be raised physically from the dead because He, Jesus, has been raised physically from the dead. Of course, if there is a God, He can operate outside of human wisdom and human understanding to perform miracles, to raise the dead. He is God. And regardless of what we think in our own logic and reasoning, God's Word trumps all. Scripture over experience, Scripture over tradition, Scripture over reason. At City on a Hill, we want to be people of the book. We want to hear God speak. It really is a key value for us as a church. It matters less about what I think. I really... You don't want to know what I think. You need to want to know what God thinks. You know, on my iPad here, I have the Bible pasted uh, on my page for when I read out the Bible. But I like to physically grab a paper Bible. Not that the paper Bible is any better than the digital one that I've pasted onto my page here. But I personally, not just the tactile, I like to touch things. I want us all to see that we're getting this from the book that this isn't just Dave here, Dave stepped away, he's getting this from the book, he's reading this from God's Word. We must be a people of God's Word. And if God speaks in the Bible, it's important that all people are given the opportunity to hear God's Word. You know, one of the things that uh, I regularly come back to and I'm regularly moved by is the need for more and more Bible translation to happen. I think one of the most important work happening in the world right now are nerds sitting in a room translating the Bible into languages that don't yet have the Bible. Love those nerds. Love their work. Profound work. According to Wycliffe, an organisation that are all about Bible translation, uh, they suggest that 1.5 billion people don't have a full Bible in their language. That's a significant proportion of the world's population. And 145 million people don't even have a scripture verse in their language. And further, there are 350 uh, plus sign languages that are still waiting for a video Bible translation. There's a lot of work to be done that more people can hear God's Word. 
let's give ourselves to the work of Bible translation by praying for that work, by giving towards that work, and perhaps even by doing that work. You might even be here thinking, oh, I'm not kind of gifted for Christian ministry and, you know, there's, you know, I don't feel confident in front of a big group of people. I don't even feel confident leading a Bible study group. You know, like, I, I kind of don't have anything. But you're a gun at languages. Would you use the gifts that God has given you in languages? Would you use those gifts to go to the ends of the earth, that God's Word would be made known, that people would hear His voice? Number one, we see Josiah hearing God's Word, the impact that God's Word has on his head. Number two is his heart. And his heart is all about believing God's Word, receiving God's Word. You know, I think one of the dangers for us at City on a Hill as a Bible church, we, we, we want to teach the Bible, we open up the Bible, we work our way through the Bible, we, we gather together in gospel communities, not just to you know, kind of share our own thoughts, we actually want to open the book and we want to keep coming back to God's Word, the danger is that it can very easily remain a head thing, it can very easily just be an intellectual thing, it is an intellectual thing, we, be- we believe with our minds, we hear with our minds, like we, we, we hear God's Word but it's got to be connected to the heart, it's got to go deep, we've got to believe it, not just intellectually assent to it, but actually live in response to it, that it would cut us to the heart. I want you to notice the way that Josiah's heart is captured. It's remarkable to see in 2 Kings chapter 22, we've just heard that Josiah, verse 10, has heard the book of the law read out. Notice with me the impact that it has upon him. Verse 11, 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. We don't have enough of that at church, right? The end of the Bible reading, rip off your shirt. That kind of feels a little bit strange, doesn't it? It kind of feels very different from our world, but there's an emotional response. There's a, there's a, there's a response that Josiah has. You can kind of almost imagine, like we've only just rediscovered this, Oh my goodness, God is speaking. It's cutting him to his heart. It goes on, and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahiakim the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Asiah the king's servant saying, go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book do, uh, to do according to all that is written concerning us. The, the first response there, he tears off his shirt and there's a fear. Oh my God, we haven't been obeying this book. My father hasn't been obeying this book. My grandfather hasn't been obeying this book. The priorities of this book have not been the priorities in this household. And he knows the dire consequences, the wrath, the judgment, the anger of God that rightly would ought to be poured out on this people for their unfaithfulness in forgetting God's Word. Verse 14, so Hilkiah the priest and Ahiakim and Akbor and Shaphan and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. It's the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. No, I don't know if it's the same 
wardrobe. Uh, Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they talked with her and she said to them, this, uh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will be quenched. But, verse 18, to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place." And they brought back word to the king. It's a remarkable picture, isn't it? The heart of Josiah, the humility, the penitence. There's a falling before God, tearing of clothes, weeping. There's a, there's an un, there's a deep understanding from Josiah that God's word is right and that God is righteous and that God's judgment is just, and yet God says, my judgment's still coming, Babylon is still coming, exile is still coming, and yet at least for Josiah, Josiah won't see those days in his lifetime. And yet, I love the resolve of Josiah, that even though judgment is to come, even though wrath will still be poured out from God, he does what's right. His heart is captured by the Word of God. He doesn't just believe it with his head, but he believes it in his heart. He is cut to the core. In Luke chapter 24, uh, we read the well-known passage of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Uh, He meets with a couple of his disciples and it takes them a while to work out they've been walking with Jesus. And so Jesus says this in Luke 24, verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a moment. Jesus opens up, considers the stories, considers the law, considers the prophets, considers all of the Old Testament and shows how the Old Testament Scriptures were all pointing to Him, the coming of the Christ. That God makes promises in the Old that find their fulfilment in the New and in Him. Uh, Soon they're going to find out 
three years. Look, verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Boom! And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the Scriptures, their hearts burn. The Word of God, hearing the Word of God, seeing Christ at the centre of the Word of God is to cause our hearts likewise to burn. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. You know, at City on a Hill, we seek to teach from the whole Bible. Uh, I think we spent probably half this year teaching from the Old Testament. And there's dangers of teaching from the Old Testament of moralism. We can easily kind of end up with a conclusion each week. Uh, don't be like Manasseh. Didn't work out well for him. Uh, do be like Josiah. Went okay for him. Now, at one level, there's an element of truth in that. We learn from the history of Israel. We learn from the history of Judah. But first and foremost, and, and, and you'll hear this as we've been working through this series over the last five weeks... As we speak from 1 and 2 Kings, we've got to see Jesus in those verses. We've got to see Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises that have been made in the Old Testament. Our hearts, even in the first chapter of the whole Bible, must burn as we see Jesus on every page of this book. You know, as you look ahead to 2022, what is your plan for spending time in God's Word? Let me urge you, make a plan. What are you planning on doing? Maybe even start it before the new year. Get going now. But it might be that January 1 is the time to start a new plan. Lots of people start a Bible reading plan on January 1 and lots of people have finished by January 7. Now, it's not that they've read the whole of the Bible by January 7. It's because, ah, oh, I missed it on the 2nd, I missed it on the 4th, I missed it on the 6th. Uh, I'm, let me just put it off and I'll start it again in 2023. Now, no, let me urge you to, one, have a plan, but also not be so rigid with your plan. You might miss days and you might catch them back up or you might just pick it up, whatever day is on your plan and keep going, keep reading. Think less about just next year and more about the formation that can take place over the next decade. As each year, you give yourself to reading big chunks of Scripture and each year, you continue to see how Christ is at the centre of all Scripture. But more than having a plan to read the Bible, which we must... Make sure you give yourself time to reflect, asking that God's Spirit would make your heart burn, that you would be captivated as you see Jesus in this Word, as you believe Him, not just with your head, but with your heart. You see, we've seen Josiah's relationship to God's Word. In his head, he hears God's Word. In his heart, he believed God's Word. And the third and final thing, with his hands, he obeys God's Word. There is a remarkable impact of God's Word in his life that leads to obedience. Uh, we're not going to read much of it, but in chapter 23, uh, we basically see uh, the way in which uh, Josiah's hands get to work in obeying God's Word. Uh, we kind of see three things. We see renewal, reformation and remembrance. Let me quickly show you each of those in turn. Renewal. Uh, have a look at um, chapter 23, verse 1, it says, Then the king sent and all the elders of 
Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him, and the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book and all the people joined in the covenant. What a moment. Josiah heard the word and now he reads the word again in the hearing of God's people and they are reminded of God's covenant, God's promise. God's relationship with them, who He is, what He will do, and what He expects of His people. And there is a commitment made to wholeheartedly follow this law. Josiah makes the commitment. The people make the commitment. The covenant is renewed. And then the renewing of the covenant then leads to a reformation. Now, we won't read it out, but basically from verse 4 all the way down to verse 20, we see the Word of God is unleashed uh, with a whole bunch of reforms under the leadership of Josiah. Let me give you Dale Ralph Davis's summary of what he calls the 12-step demonassification program. He's undoing all that Manasseh had done and it's radical, it's reforming of Judah. Verse 4, removing pagan vessels from the temple. Verse 5, deposing pagan clergy. Verse 6, pulverizing the Asherah image. Verse 7, wrecking the male prostitutes' temple apartments. Verse 8 and 9, defiling Judah's high places, deposing their priests. Verse 10, desecrating Tophet, the place of child sacrifice. That's good news. Verse 11, removing and destroying sun worship paraphernalia. Verse 12, smashing royal idolatrous altars. Verse 13, eliminating Solomon's folly. Verse uh, 14, destroying the props of fertility worship. Verse 15 and 16, pulling down and defiling Jeroboam's Bethel worship center. And verse 19 and 20, instituting a purge throughout the northern cities. Whew! There's a comprehensive 12-step demonassification program. Now, we don't live in a theocracy with God's King in charge of our nation or any other nation, nor should we expect God's King to have God's land on earth. And so, we don't walk around causing destruction in broader society, but rather, we tear down idols in our own lives. We let the Word of God have a reformation in our own hearts. You know, at, at different times throughout church history, when God's people do obey God's Word, it does lead to change in the society at large. But it's less about change in the society at large by legislation and more about change in society at large by influence, by reformation within the hearts of God's people who are seeking to no longer live for themselves but to live for Him. And so, from renewal, we go to reformation, and then finally, we go to remembrance. There's something that they've forgotten of crucial importance in the worship of Judah. Have a look at verse 21. It says, And the king commanded all the people, 
Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. I was struck by that this week. There's been no Passover kept since the time of the judges. The actual last time the Passover was mentioned was in the book of Joshua. Now, what is the Passover? The Passover is a moment in Israel's history when they saw the mighty and outstretched arm of God. They were slaves in Egypt, and yet God came in judgment against their slave keepers. And in the 10th plague, God's people were saved on that night when the angel of death went throughout Egypt, killing all the firstborns. They were saved because of the blood on the door frames of their homes. They were saved because of the blood that was shed from the innocent lamb. And each year, Israel would remember that mighty act of redemption and salvation by sacrificing a lamb, feasting on it together, and remembering that God had saved them. And yet, so many generations have not observed the Passover. And the Passover does two things for the people of God in the Old Testament. It helps them to look back to God's rescue in the book of Exodus, but it also ought to cause them to look forward to the greater Passover to come in Jesus. See, Jesus is the King of Kings. We have the coming King that we're waiting for by the end of 1 and 2 Kings is is not about to appear just yet. He's coming in and through the person and work of Jesus, God's only Son. He is the the King of Kings who lives the perfect life, who obeys God's book of the law perfectly. And He is the King of Kings who then becomes the sacrificial lamb, the one who dies in the place of sinners, the one who dies that we can be saved and spared if we have His blood marked out on the household of our life. And Jesus not only lived that perfect life and died as the sacrificial lamb, He was raised from the dead. He's the resurrected King of kings, the ruler, the great Son of David that will rule forever on the throne as the risen Lord Christ. I was reading the following from... uh, the Archbishop of Sydney uh, in the Anglican Church, his name is Kanishka Raphael, uh, and he told the story of uh, a special day in the Anglican Church around the world, which is October the 16th. Uh, it's a day that is set as the day for the remembrance of the Reformers and the Martyrs of the English Reformation from the 1500s. It's a day when uh, there's a commemoration of over 300 men, women and children who were martyred as members of the Church of England who were burnt at the stake at the command of Queen Mary and her bishops in that second half of the 16th century. They died for their conviction that the teaching of Scripture was, was true Christianity and that even the Church, its popes, its bishops, its theologians, its councils, its synods, if they contradicted Scripture, they were to hold Scripture was to be the thing that they were to be obeying. And these Uh, reformers were not to be moved from that, not for the sake of harmony, not for the sake of promotion, not even for the sake of saving their own lives. They were among the first Christians to be called evangelicals, a word intended to be an insult, but made by their deaths into a badge of honour. You see, on October the 16th, 1555, Hugh Latimer, he was a bishop of 
uh, a place that I can't pronounce, and Nicholas Ridley, a Bishop of London, were burned at the stake in Oxford. Uh, what were their heinous crimes for which they were convicted? Uh, what, what, what was it that meant they went to the stack of wood to be burnt? It was because they believed that the Bible alone is the rule of faith, able to make us wise for salvation. You know, Latimer even said that a layman fearing God is much more fit to understand Holy Scripture than any arrogant or proud priest, yea, than the bishop himself, uh, be he never so great and glittering. And as to the way of salvation, Latimer said this, stick to the Word of God, which teaches that Christ is not only a judge but a justifier, a giver of salvation and a taker away of sin. He purchased our salvation through His painful death and we receive the same through believing in Him. All merits and works are excluded and taken away. It is Christ's doing only. God has given Him to us to be our deliverer and to give us everlasting life. They didn't die recklessly or lightly. They died for the gospel that you and I know. They died for the truth about God, about His Christ and about His people as revealed in His Word. They are powerful examples of people who heard and did the Word of God and people who will hear God's Word and do it are people who, like the Reformers, will turn their world upside down as we exalt Christ and proclaim His Gospel. Brothers and sisters, let us not be a people that forget this book. Let us not lose this for 20 years. Let us not lose this at all. Let's continue to come back to this book. Believe in this book and obeying this book. We now have the opportunity to celebrate a family meal together, instituted by Christ. Uh, We're invited to to meet with God at the table, um, to have communion with Him and communion with each other. We're going to share the Lord's Supper. If you didn't receive a a little pack on your way in, just pop your hand up until you've received one. Uh, One of our team will come around. But on the night before Jesus died, He took bread and when He'd given thanks, He broke it. Then He gave it to His disciples saying, take and eat. Uh, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, He took the cup and again giving thanks, He gave it to His disciples saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so as we eat this meal, we're reminded of Jesus' body and blood given for us at the cross. And it's right as we come to this table that we're real with God about our sin. And so brothers and sisters, out loud, together, with the words of the prayer of confession on the screen, let's confess our sins to Almighty God. Merciful Father, We have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the schemes and desires of our own hearts and have broken your holy laws. We have left undone what we ought to have done and we have done what we ought not to have done. Yet, good Lord, have mercy on us. Restore those who repent according to the promises declared to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant, merciful Father, for His sake, that from now on, we may live godly and obedient lives to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Good news is we have word after word of gospel assurance in Scripture that God hears our prayers. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all 
unrighteousness. A couple of verses later, it says, He, Jesus, is the propitiation, the one who turns aside wrath for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to participate in this meal if you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're normally part of a different church, but you're in good standing with that church. Be our guest today. We'd love to share this meal with you. But if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we are so glad that you're here. But we'd ask you to refrain from participating in this meal at the moment. Uh, Please watch. Please ask questions uh, of whoever has brought you to church today. Uh, You might even have one of these cups. Just feel free to leave it on your chair on your way out. But as we eat this, we not only look back to Jesus' death, but we look forward to when we will eat Uh, with him in the new creation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, brothers and sisters, take the bread from the top of your cups and let's eat this in remembrance that Christ died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. And brothers and sisters, let's drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for us and be thankful. Amen. As the band come out the front, uh, why don't I pray one more time? Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak. We ask that you'd help us to not only hear your word, but to believe your word and to obey your word, that we would trust Jesus as we meet him in your word. And Father, we pray that you would send us out empowered by your word to continue to make him known, our perfect king who lived for us, died for us and was raised again. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.